Welcome to The Build Up. I'm Kirk Pinhop. And I'm Arielle Cass. We cover real estate for Cranes Detroit Business. Together, we're launching this podcast to give you the inside scoop on commercial real estate. We'll be bringing in experts from across the industry to offer their perspectives on the biggest issues they face today and what challenges they expect for the future. This is The Build Up. Today's guest is Mike Cooper, the president and managing principal of HED, a planning, architecture, engineering, landscape architecture, interior design, and construction services firm, formerly known as Harley Ellis Devereaux. The company made headlines recently when it announced it would be moving from its 36,000 square foot Southfield headquarters to a 19,000 square foot space in downtown Royal Oak. Mike, thanks for joining us on The Build Up. Thank you, I appreciate being here. So Mike, you started off at a Coca-Cola bottling plant. And I'm curious about what that experience was like and what lessons you took forward as you moved through business. When I graduated from the University of Michigan, I was given an opportunity with Coca-Cola. At the time, that was a great opportunity because I was looking to relocate to New York City. There were for several reasons. Uh, my girlfriend, now wife, lived there um, and, and I wanted to experience something different. And that gave me an opportunity to do that. So I was grateful. Um, it was a, a terrific experience. Um, in a lot of ways, I, I learned certainly a lot about business. I learned about production, food and beverage production. Um, and I also learned, you know, besides the experience, I learned some things that I, I didn't love. Um, I didn't love um, being in the manufacturing and plant environment. That was something that I enjoyed the learning experience. But but long term, I knew that wasn't something that I um, wanted to do. And um, and and through that experience, I was engaged and worked with a number of consultants who were helping us um, do some of the work in the plants that 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 we were engaged with. And so I got to see consulting engineering, and I got to see a little bit um, of that field, which I really enjoyed. I liked talking to the individuals. I liked what they were doing, um, and so it gave me an introduction um, again to something that I could use. And so. Um, when I felt the time was right for me to try something different and, and move on from from that experience, um, I was able to move into um, into consulting engineering, um, having had some experience there. I would also tell you that that um, one of my older brothers is a consulting engineer, and so he certainly um, was an influence and, and and was able to give me um, a little bit of information on that. But but and I've been doing that ever since. You know, today with a full service AE firm, but um, that kind of work. Um, working for, for different clients in different sectors, um, trying to help them out is something I've, I've always really enjoyed. And, and that continues through today and beyond. Did you regularly come home like covered in Coca-Cola from spills or anything? So I did not, but I can tell you all the Coca-Cola you can drink was available. And though I was a fan when I started, um, you know, I got to a point where I just couldn't drink any more of that stuff. So are you a Pepsi um, man now? So to, to, to be totally honest, I don't drink, I don't drink Coke. I don't drink Pepsi. I, I drink a lot of water. So I stay away from the Coke Pepsi wars. I don't want any part of that. <laughs> how has, um, and you've obviously been in this business for many years, how has, um, design and architecture engineering changed in the last number of years as it relates to things like accessibility and sustainability and just overall changing tastes? You know, back then you could be the best architect or the best engineer at a company and perhaps rise to leading the company. Um, today, I think we're much more in a place where the management and leadership skills are by themselves a discipline and a skill set 
very separate from the technical skills that go into architecture or engineering, for example. And so um, I think you find now that we have to pay much closer attention to both the technical side of the business and the business side of the business, much more so than we did when I entered uh, when I entered the firm. And so I think when you look at things, Kirk, like you mentioned, accessibility, sustainability, it's um, erratically different. I think today, um, you know, equity, diversity, inclusion, belonging, um, those are those are real aspects of what we're designing. We're designing for communities and we want everybody in the community to be able to enjoy what we do, to be able to engage um, with what we do, to experience um, the spaces, the structures, the places that we are helping to create. Um, that was not the case when I entered um, when, when I entered. And so I think from that end, very, very positive. Um, I think you find a lot more consideration. Um, and, and if, you know, if we do this because of the positive impact that, that we can have, and I think a lot of people in my profession choose this profession because there's a great reward, great satisfaction, and huge positive impact to a lot of people, then you want that impact to be as far reaching as possible. And so um, certainly with respect to accessibility, much more so than it was when I entered the business, you know, 30 plus years ago. The other thing I would mention is that um, the, the, the generations entering the workforce today are much more focused on purpose much more focused on, um, on, on, on positive impact and, and affecting people in a very positive, just way. And, and our ability to create not just great buildings, great structures, great sites, but sites that are, um, that are sustainable, that are promoting a healthier lifestyle, that are promoting wellness, um, that resonates very strongly with the professionals that are emerging and entering the profession today. So I think those things, not only are they good for our clients, they're good for our planet, but they're good for, for our firms and our industry because we will we'll draw, we'll draw the next generation in uh, by focusing on purpose and focusing on positive impact. I think they, they're, they're growing up with these values instilled in them um, and I think we can further those things. We can build upon where they are and create an environment where they're real comfortable and real happy. As we see more people working in a hybrid environment, how does that change in office design? Um, if we want to bring people back into the office, we have to start with the idea that regardless of what a person is going to do that day, let's make sure there's a great space for them to do it in in the office. If, if, if somebody is going to be coming in and sitting down and reviewing a contract all day long and they're going to be working by themselves, great. Let's make sure there's a space for them to do it where they have the technology tools they need, they have the, the environment, the privacy that they need, the focus that they need, um, but, um, and they can do that. If somebody needs to, you know, maybe meet with a couple of people, maybe then go back and do some other stuff, meet with a couple more people, let's make sure there are some breakout and some huddle spaces, some casual informal spaces where a group of people can get together and talk. Again, the technology has to be there. It has to be a convenient space, has to have the appropriate kind of furniture, the appropriate environment. Um, again, conference spaces. We are going to still have meetings that require a, a more a more conference-like environment, a boardroom setting perhaps, and let's make sure um, that those things are in play. Um, a focus room or a, or a phone room that we're seeing more of. Um, if I need to be on 
Teams or Zoom calls. Um, and I need to do that for several hours by myself, but I need a space where I can do it. Um, I don't necessarily want to be out in the open where everyone is going to hear me talking. Is there a kind of space that is appropriate for that activity, which maybe five years ago we didn't see as being a great need? I think today we see that as a huge need in the office. Um, and so let's make sure we have those spaces. The cafe and social space, right? The replication of a Starbucks or a Panera Bread so people can experience um, a social setting. You could still work in those settings. It's just a little bit of a different vibe. Um, and people are looking for that. There's no question. Um, um, touchless um, lighting, faucets, door locks. I think the pandemic has, has heightened awareness of um, coming into contact with things, maybe trying to reduce the contact we come into, knowing that, that, that we could be exposed to something that we don't want to be. We're seeing a lot more touchless control, individualized control in office space, which I think is good. Um, and then I think a focus on, on wellness gender neutral facilities, wellness, sustainability, those things that, that make us feel good about being in a place um, and comfortable being in a place. I think if you, the sum total of all of those kinds of things, you know, the hope is, is that you would wake up in the morning and say, you know what, my day is filled with lots of different kinds of things, but I can do all of those things in the office. Plus, I can see my friends. I can see my colleagues. I can experience some of the social, the enjoyable things um, about work. Because I think when you strip away all the social stuff, you know, then and you're just left with work, it can be a bit less enjoyable. It can feel a little bit more like a grind. We want to build those social activities back in, those opportunities. So, you know, as we work hard, there's also time where we can spend a couple of minutes talking to people. If we can build all of those things into an office, very different from the way that we looked at, say, workplace um, a decade ago, if we can build those spaces in, um, we, we can attract people, I believe, into the office, not because we mandate that they be there, because they'll want to be there, because the spaces we provide will be the best spaces, the most productive, the most satisfying spaces for them to do the work in. And then I might add, and I'm sure it's something that you would see, um, you can do all of this in less space than you currently have. I mean, let's, let's be honest, we, we, a hybrid environment allows more sharing of space um, it allows um, a little bit more free address. If you're coming in and, and you can work in this type of space at one point, this type at another point, this type at another point through your day, everybody doesn't need dedicated space for everything that they do. And there's an opportunity that we can provide better spaces for our people and we can do it with less real estate. And I think we're seeing a trend in that direction as well, not just redesigning the office with respect to facilities and those kinds of things, but also doing it in a smaller footprint, which allows us to invest more in people and invest more in technology and maybe invest a little bit less in real estate, but not give up our competitive advantage and not give up all of the things in our companies that we know bring great value. You're doing a really good job providing me just sort of natural entryways into the next question. So thank you. Um, sure. That helps um, lead us into why is HED moving? Um, you have a big, you know, space in Southfield at the Beaumont building. You've been there for a long time, but now you're moving into the old, um, uh, the old Barnes and Noble, I want to say, over in Royal Oak. Um, it is. It's just so, amazing. 
yeah, so talk to us a little bit about that and why that decision was made and where you guys stand in the moving process. Um, the reason why we chose to look at it in, in a different direction really had to do most with the sensibilities of our staff and, and what they were looking for. And what they were looking for was uh, perhaps a more urban, more dense, more amenity-rich environment in a walkable community. Um, I think as part of the, the the overall sustainability and wellness discussion we had before, there is trending towards more dense, more urban settings where you have some of these things. We have not had those things, and I, and I think that was something that our people were looking for in a, in a new location. And so, um, when 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 we got you know sort of in close proximity to the to the um, expiration of our lease, we began looking at options. Um, of, a, of a more dense, more urban, more walkable, more amenity-rich place where um, you could experience some things that were very different from our experience in Southfield. Um, because of the amount of space that we were looking for, we were looking for about 20,000 square foot of space, There's there aren't an abundance of those size spaces in, in areas like Royal Oak, for example. And so um, we were able um, to become aware of this space and, uh, and, and, and happily, um, we were able to um, enter into a discussion, which turned into a negotiation, which turned into a lease, um, which gives us all of those things that we looked for. It gives us a space with the, the ability and the bones to be able to provide all those kinds of, of different types of workspaces that we talked about. It gives us an amenity-rich, walkable community um, where people can walk outside and if they want to grab coffee or breakfast or lunch, there's an array of, of places to go to. If you just want to take a walk and, and go sit in a park, you can do that. If you want to meet up before or after work, you can do that quite easily. And Royal Oak, frankly, offers you know convenient parking and some of the other um, and some of the other things that 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 come along with a more urban setting that you have to manage. And um, you know they've they've made us feel real welcome. And uh, and it just it had all of the things um, that that our people were looking for, and uh, and so for us it was a pretty natural um, and an easy decision to make to say this is this is what we're looking for this is available um, they match up and align really well and and I think we're all really excited about. Um, the prospect of of of, a, of a, a new place, not too far from our current office, and so it, I don't think it doesn't um, impact anyone's commute all that much. But the experience that they're going to have in the in the office setting, um, in the in the in this in the city and the in the area itself, is going to be quite dramatic. I think in a very positive way. I'm going to take us in a little bit of another direction. Um, architecture has historically been a pretty monolithic industry in terms of race and gender. And I'm curious about your thoughts on diversification and what you think the field should do um, to bring in more diverse voices and perspectives. Well, I think it's going to be a viability issue for us. Our, our clients are going to be demanding this of us because they know it's in their best interest. Um, the, the future generation of new talent will be demanding that of us because that's the environment they want to work in. And so if we're, we're, un, if we're unable to get clients and we're unable to get staff, um, it's going to become a, viab a business viability issue. And so we have to bring in more diverse voices and perspectives. Um, the question is, is 
you know, what do we do? How do we go about the business of, of, of doing that? And so, um, number one, like I said earlier, let's recognize this for what it is, which is a bottom line business issue. We do want to do this and we want to feel good about doing it, but this is also something that's a business imperative. I think it's important we all recognize that as, as in our business community. Um, and then we have to talk about the commitment from leadership, the commitment from leadership to take action as opposed to talk about it. Because sometimes, um, you know, we can talk about, you know, metrics and talk about statistics, but oftentimes changing those things requires specific actions. You know, if if you want more females on your board of directors, sometimes you simply need to put more females on your board of directors as opposed to talking about it. And so I think there needs to be a strong leadership commitment there. Um, we have to learn about the, the underrepresented groups what their experience is, what they're looking for, what they respond to. Um, I think we we often um, can talk about underrepresented groups um, as if we understand their perspectives. And I think it's important that we assume that we don't and, and talk to them about what their perspectives are, what they're looking for, what, the, what they respond to, what environments they find most conducive and satisfying so that when we do take action and we do respond, it is in response to um, to the needs of, of the communities that we're trying to reach and not in response to something that we've perhaps created in our own head. Um, you know, um, I, um, we have to, you know, increase the visibility of our industry to these groups. You know, there's a saying, right, if I can see it, I can be it. And I believe that that's real. Um, I think if, if, if you're in an underrepresented population and you look at a company or you look at an industry and you see nobody that resembles yourself there, it's hard to imagine how you could fit in and how you could grow and how and, and how you can move through that that industry. However, if you do see people there, if you are exposed to people with similar backgrounds and similar experiences, um, and you can talk to those folks, it becomes much easier for you to assimilate there. And so um, I think we've got to be much more visible and much more purposeful about the people we're reaching and, and who we're talking to. Um, we have to make it part of the everyday conversation and we do need actions and metrics and milestones. We do need accountability. I've spoken with some people who've said that um, things like various certifications and internships and some of the hurdles that you need to go through to become accredited seem a little bit superf superfluous or um, as, as big barriers to entry for underrepresented communities um, or, or things like that, um, something that where where they should be modified to allow for um, a little bit more wiggle room? Well, I, I think, you know, so when you, you know, some of the, the, the credentials licensing, for example, you know, I, I don't think there's a lot of wiggle room there. I, I think there's a um, there is a there's a there's a sort of a public safety um, and and uh, um, um, aspect to what we do that I think needs to be maintained. I think that um, when you talk about other credentials, I think those things are broadening. You know, as we as we talk about sustainability and, and as we talk about wellness and as we talk about energy and we talk about um, carbon, the different aspects to our industry. I think there will be more opportunities for people. Um, to, let's say, um, enhance their expertise in ways that may be more comfortable 
um, to them or in areas where their passions um, lie. And I do believe that we'll be able to broaden those things. The other thing I think that we can do as an industry and as companies is introduce people and help them um, cross some of the barriers that they may see. Um, there are there are barriers with respect to understanding the credentials, the materials to prepare, some of the background things, certainly the cost and the time to be able to do those things. Those are all things that companies can assist our staff and our candidates with. We can provide time to be able to pursue things. We can provide funding to help with some of the materials and the study aids. We can provide background and mentorship from people who have done these things to help them. I think you know some of the some of the credentials are really important and really valuable. And the barriers are often lack of awareness, lack of understanding, lack of exposure. And I, I would want to make sure that that while we broaden some of the things that 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 we can offer as a as an entry into the organization, we also um, maintain some of the really solid, good quality programs that are in place, but maybe help our people um, so that they're not such barriers to entry, but there are, there are enhancements to expertise that our company can help us achieve. And, I, and there's probably room on both sides of the equation for some movement there. I understand that in your office, you have a 1978 photo of Microsoft, all of Microsoft in a garage, it's all of 11 people. I do. Can you tell us a little bit about why and, and what inspiration you get from it? Absolutely. Um, um, all big things start as small things. Um, and, and we often talk about, you know, our work is often about creating big things large structures. We talk about um, large dollar amounts. We talk about long schedules and time frames. That photograph, the all-company photograph of, of Microsoft um, is, a, is a reminder for me because, you know, that's not that long ago. I mean, it is, but it isn't. It's a reminder for me simply that, that things don't start out big. Microsoft wasn't born the Microsoft of today. Microsoft was a startup in a garage. It was a bunch of people working together, trying to do something meaningful and impactful, not unlike the story of HED, not unlike the story of a, of a lot of the firms in our industry. Um, and, and, and what it looks like when you when you succeed on an unbelievably grand basis. What it, you know, when you when you create something that impacts, you know, globally you know, a majority of the population, that's an incredible thing. We, you know, I wouldn't necessarily compare what we're doing or our industry to Microsoft, but I can tell you that the impact that we can have on people can be as profound as, as the impacts that software can have. Um, and so um, I, I, I like to remember that we are planning to do big things, but we don't have to, we don't have to have the big thing figured out on day one. We we can start small and work our way to the to the the big solution. And that photograph for me is a constant reminder of that. It's a perspective reminder for me, um, and I think it's helpful because um, you know you can you can get caught up in how big a task is, um, how big a thing is that you're striving for, um, and I think it sometimes it's just easier to just 
get through the next week and the next month. You know, on projects, you know, a finish line two years or three years out is tough to, it's tough to wrap your arms around. Here's what I know. If I get through next week on schedule and the week after that on schedule and the week after that on schedule and the week after that on schedule, keep doing that. And when the finish line comes, we'll be there. We were talking a little bit off camera about um, your, I guess, amateur involvement in the, uh, in the, in the film industry. Um, I'm wondering um, what you, uh, I, I guess, I guess what you get from that and helping your, uh, helping your sons out in the industry and um, talk a little bit about how, uh, how, how you're entwined with that. Yeah, I get a lot out of that. Right. So, my two older sons, they're twin boys. They're 27 years old. They live in Southern California. They are filmmakers in Southern California. They, um, it's not what they do. It's who they are. It, th that's been great for me because um, they, they um, number one, you know, passion and work ethic and drive, you know, they love to do this. And, and, and what I see in them is, is something I want, I hope that I will always have. And that is, you know, a drive to continue to learn and to continue to grow and to pursue the things that I love doing. And when you're younger, you do those things more naturally. And, you know, after several decades in the industry, um, I, I, I want to, you know, I want to feel that every day. And I do, and I can feel it a little bit through them which I think is, is, is a real thrill um, for me. The other thing is the hyper creativity. So my background is mechanical engineering. I was not the person who could sit down with a blank sheet of paper and crank out a paper. I was more a math and science analytical person. They are hyper creative um, and they can invent storylines and they can invent settings and characters out of thin air that are quite compelling. Um, and um, and I and that inspires me as well because um, it can be done. It's not necessarily my strength, but it pushes me um, to my more creative side. I'll, I'll, I will offer a pitch. They've made several short films. They've done well in, in film festivals. Cooperbrothersfilms.com. Cooperbrothersfilms.com, and they're all there, and you can see them. And they are quite accomplished in the short film world. And they are focused now on expanding that um, to feature films, to series, and they're working real hard to get some things developed. And, um, and I expect my unbiased opinion as their father is I think they're going to get it done. Do you do all your own stunts in their movies or do you have to outsource that? No, no, I would never. I am, I am, I'm doing all my own stunts. Me and Tom Cruise. Yeah. Um, we've talked a lot about successes, but I'm kind of curious about where maybe you've stumbled along the lines and what I'm wondering what you would say your biggest failure is in business and, and how you went about addressing that. Um, you know, we've been around as, as, a, as a firm for 114 years. Um, we're not going anywhere. Um, you got to stand up. You got to take responsibility for what you do and you got to fix it. You got to clean up your mess. And um when, when, we, when we have failed, when I have failed to do that, um, number one, I think you, you, you lose your client, but I think you lose your, your integrity. I think you lose the substance that you have, a little bit of professionalism. I think you lose a little bit of yourself there. I certainly felt like I did um, in those moments. And I, I think now, um, as I look at it, today um how i how how i how you handle failure how you handle those those circumstances that are unfortunate um i think you do everything you can to correct them and make it right 
And in the short term, it can be very painful. And in the long term, it will pay off in big dividends because I've learned that very often um, people's, people remember how you reacted to and how you addressed a problem more clearly than they often remember the problem. And so um, I, I think in, in, in the vein of the work that we do, I, I believe me, I am, I, I am constantly reminded that I am human and I am fallible. Um, and as I have, have, have taken missteps, um, my big lesson is you stand up, you take responsibility and you fix it. It's the other place where, um, where, where you fail is, is, is in building your team and perhaps misidentifying a fit, cultural, strategic, or otherwise, and that happens as well. And oftentimes, especially in a tight labor market, we feel like we're pressured to act in haste, right? We gotta act fast. I have learned that the goal is not to hire people, it's to hire the right people. And so take the time to do that. Take the time, um, because if, if you misstep there, it's painful for us as an organization. It's painful for the individual. It's nobody's fault. Sometimes a good fit just isn't a good fit. Yeah, hope that answers your question. I, I appreciate you bringing up the, the the problems and the missteps and the misjudgments. I always like to relive those things, but uh, but they're reality. We're human. We're going to make mistakes. I think the most important thing is um, how we react, how we how we come back from that. We do our absolute best to make every single guest feel horribly uncomfortable when we ask that question. That's uh. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep, I'm waiting for the guests that tells you they don't have any of those experiences. I'm we sure we'll find them. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mike, thanks for giving us such thoughtful answers today. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us, Mike. Really appreciate it and appreciate the discussion. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Take care. Yeah, take care. Bye-bye.